0: 2007, November 19th. Today is Lecture 39, The Moons of Jupiter. Well, we've been discussing mostly planets thus far, and now it's time to look at a bit more of the uh, other stuff in the solar system. We've gone through the eight major planets. So today we're going to begin a two-part lecture on the giant moons of the solar system, at least the inner portions of the giant moons. We've already met one of them, Triton, the giant moon of Neptune. But the main group of giant moons is found in the planetary system, the moon systems that surround the planets Jupiter and Saturn. Today we're going to talk about the system of moons found around Jupiter. Tomorrow we're going to talk about the really exciting results we've been learning over the last couple of years with the Cassini mission around the planet Saturn. And on Wednesday we are going to talk about planetary rings. I've sort of left that discussion for the last of this section. But today we're going to concentrate on the Galilean moons, which previously we've already met. We've met the Galilean moons through Galileo's telescope in 1610, but now it's time to get up close and personal with them. Key ideas are as follows. Jupiter's current count of moons is 63. It's the most number of moons of any planet in the solar system, and it keeps on growing. But of interest to us today is not that larger number, but the smaller four Galilean moons. These are the four giant moons of Jupiter, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. These are large, bigger than 3,000 kilometer moons. They are spherical and they are differentiated. So they're very much like the moon, for example, in the sense of its internal structure, but a very different composition. There's two in particular that we're going to take a very close look at, Io and Europa. Io is the most volcanically active place in the solar system. Now, wait a minute. What's a little tiny world which should be old and cold doing being the most volcanically active thing in the solar system? We'll see in just a second. Also, Europa is is an ice world, and it may, in fact, have one of the few liquid oceans in the solar system other than on the Earth, and one other place we're going to see tomorrow, Enceladus. And so it's going to be an interesting place for future exploration. In fact, it's a lot of interest in Europa right now. The other 59 moons are all going to be small. There's a big size differential. They're all under 200 kilometers in diameter. They're irregular in size. They kind of look like beaten up old potatoes, and they're undifferentiated. So it's a real distinction between a big moon and a small moon is whether or not they're differentiated, whether or not gravity is shaping them into a spherical shape. So we'll see some of those in the beginning here, but we're really going to spend our time on the four Galilean moons. Well, let's just sort of jump right into it as far as facts are concerned. Jupiter has 63 moons. Of these, the four largest are the Galilean moons, which I've just introduced, they're very large. They're more than 3,000 kilometers in size. They're spherical in shape. They've been brought into that shape by their gravity. Gravity basically sculpts these things into their round forms, and they're differentiated. They were once molten, or at least they were liquid form. The heavy stuff sank to the center. The light stuff sank, floated up to the surface and gives us the structure of these moons today. All of those... Before I go... All those four giant moons turn out to orbit in this inner group here, which is shown by these, these purple circles down in the picture of this looking down from above view of the Jupiter system. In addition to the four giant moons, there are 59 smaller moons. This number gets bigger every year. There's a number of projects that are going on. A man named Scott Shepard, who's now at the Department of Terrestrial Magnetism in Washington, D.C., has led one of the largest of these efforts uh, to find the outer moons, especially the smaller, irregular moons of Jupiter. And he and his collaborators have probably discovered most of of the new ones in recent years. I remember a long time ago, back when I was in high school, there was all this excitement over the discovery of the 13th moon of Jupiter we had a talk in my little desert town from the guy who did it well now we're up to 63 moons, another 50 have been added pretty much between high school and now and the big difference is technology, it's all technology especially very very faint imaging cameras and image processing techniques however there's been no surprises, they've all been small and irregular objects they're all under about 200 kilometers in size and they're at least as far as we can tell from what ones we've been able to study at least close up briefly with the Galileo spacecraft is there undifferentiated chunks of junk. A lot of them are probably captured asteroids or captured comets, captured cometary material. In fact, even though there's a whole huge number of these things, and these are shown by multiples of these orbits here, if you added all these 59 moons up, they would only make up about one thousandth the moon, the mass of Europa, the smallest of the Galilean satellites. So when it comes to sort of you know, pure bulk of material, it's all in the Galilean satellites. Now, there's something else I'm going to mention just in passing, but I'm not going to be going into here. You may remember we talked earlier about orbit families, about how groups of objects tend to orbit together. Here's an example of that is going to be found, actually, in the details of these outer irregular moons. They're not just 59 random little chunks of junk floating around Jupiter. Some of them are going in the general same general sense as the other moons, sort of this sort of prograde sense. Some of them are orbiting retrograde. They're actually orbiting backwards that backwards orbit is usually a signpost of a a gravitational capture. But the other thing that we find is that a lot of these moons seem to share a lot of the same orbital properties, the same period, the same eccentricity, and so forth. As a consequence, they in fact look like families of objects that may have had a common origin and may have broken up from a larger object. So there's a lot of interesting science to be done on these smaller moons, which we won't be going into today, having to do with dynamical families and the possible origins of these moon systems. But just sort of keep in the back of your mind this really interesting stuff going on here. Well, here's just a look at some of these smaller moons. This is actually some of the best pictures of the small moons taken by Galileo and Voyager. These are the four innermost irregular moons. They actually are down in om- among the Galilean moons. Uh, Phoebe here is about 50 by 45 kilometers. That would very easily sit down on, the, for example, the size of Long Island here for scale. The biggest of these is Amalthea, and then you get tiny little guys like, like Adrastea. Actually, I think Adrastea was probably female, um, and Metis. Adrastea is only about 12 by 7 kilometers across, and this picture here is shown approximately to the scale. Um, these things are just little irregular things. They were imaged from a very long ways away. That's why these pictures are so blurry, and they're irregular. They're pockmarked with impact craters. They're probably undifferentiated hunks junk. And again, just to give you some idea of scale, these are, especially Amalthea. these are among the bigger ones and they barely manage to be the size of a Long Island. So we're, we're really talking about small stuff, you know, up to around 200 kilometers across or under. Well, of course, then there's a real big contrast when you look at where most of the mass of the Jupiter system is and that, of course, is going to be in the giant Galilean moons. And they are, in order of size, decreasing from largest to smallest, Ganymede, Callisto, Io, and Europa. Ganymede is the biggest moon, in fact, in the entire solar system, at a diameter of something like 5,260 kilometers across. Compare that to our moon, which is shown here to scale with the Galilean moons, at only about 3,470 kilometers across. These guys would be full-fledged planets, or at least dwarf planets, all by themselves if they were out alone in the solar system. In fact, Ganymede is really getting up in size there. It's actually getting into the, uh, getting up to, but not quite up to the, to the mass and size of Mercury. So it's really, these things would be planets, or at least dwarf planets, if they were orbiting the sun but they don't orbit the Sun. They orbit Jupiter. In fact, they probably formed with Jupiter. The fact that they're all rotating in a plane, coincident with the equatorial plane of Jupiter, the fact they're all formed out of icy, volatile materials, which probably was part of the material that Jupiter formed out of, Jupiter probably had around it a miniature solar system, just like our own Sun had built a solar system out of a solar nebula. The Proto-Jupiter probably had a Proto-Jupiter nebula, out of which these four moons formed. Now, I show the moon here for scale, but as we're about to see, the composition of these moons is very different than our own moon. These are more icy, much more water and volatiles. These are objects that were born beyond the frost line. And you can also see an amazing amount of structure. Each of them is unique and different, and each has a different story to tell about what its history has been like and what it tells us about the Jupiter environment. Now we've seen this plot before. This is the plot I showed back when we introduced the solar system. This shows on the on the y-axis here is the mass of the object, and on the x-axis here is the semi-major axis of where it orbits from the sun. Now, of course, I'm going to here are the terrestrial planets: Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. The Jupiter planet, jo- Jovian planets, the gas giants Jupiter and Saturn, and the ice giants Uranus and Neptune. The dwarf planets Ceres, Pluto and Eris are shown up here in purple. These green blobs are the asteroids. These light blue blobs are the Kuiper Belt objects out in trans-Neptunian space. And I've drawn here is the orange blobs, the giant moons of the outer solar system. There are only seven giant moons in the whole solar system. Our own moon, the moon, the strangest names in the English language. We need another name for the moon. Luna just doesn't quite cut it somehow. Our moon is one of the giant moons. Then there are the four Galilean satellites here, I've just marked them with a G. Europa is the small one and and, uh, Ganymede is the big one. Titan, the large giant moon of Saturn, and Triton, the large giant moon of Neptune. Now you'll notice that Triton is pretty similar in terms of its size and where it is in the solar system to Pluto and Eris. In fact, it is almost a full-fledged dwarf planet, save for the fact that it's orbiting around Uranus. And notice, of course, these are out here orbiting the Galilean moons, orbiting Jupiter. Notice how they lie intermediate in mass, sort of this band here, of objects that we call dwarf planets, although Ceres is sort of bringing up the tail tail end of that in terms of mass. So this gives you an idea of sort of where they stand in the hierarchy of things within the solar system. We're going to see this plot a lot over the next few lectures here and there, where we're going to bring in new classes of objects. Well, the Galilean moons, as I said before, all orbit around Jupiter. They all orbit in a plane defined by the equator of Jupiter, and they all orbit in the same clock, or in this case viewed from above, counterclockwise sense. So they all remember the swirling general direction of the rotation of Jupiter, and they formed out of probably a swirling cloud, a disk of gas, that formed around Jupiter during the course of its formation. The order from inside to out are Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. You can remember that with the simple mnemonic, I eat green cows. There you go. The orbital periods are very interesting. Io takes 1.8 days to complete a circle around Jupiter. Europa, 3.6 days, which is exactly two times Io's period. So there's an example of a mean motion resonance. Ganymede is 7.2 days to to go around once, third position. It's got four times Io's period. And you may recall back when we talked about orbital resonances, Io, Europa, and Ganymede are in a 1 to 2 to 4 Laplacian resonance. In fact, it's one of the only triple resonances in the entire solar system that we know of. Finally, Callisto's out here, the furthest most of the Galilean moons, at 16.7 days, and it isn't a whole number ratio of anybody. This is actually pretty interesting. It turns out that Io... Europa and Ganymede are all in what's called, like I said before, a Laplacian resonance. They're all moving in commensurate orbits, whole number of ratios of each other. However, it turns out that Io is feeling a tidal force from Jupiter, and just like the way the moon is slowly moving outwards away from the Earth, so too Io's orbit is slowly recessing away from Jupiter. As it moves out, the gravitational interaction with Europa and Ganymede, which are further out and feel a smaller tidal field from Jupiter, also move out in lockstep. So once you've locked bodies into one of these resonances, they'll actually move together in lockstep, including, as the orbit expands due to tidal recession, they too will expand. And in fact, people who study celestial dynamics are of the opinion that eventually you're going to reach the point where Ganymede and Callisto here are going to come into a two-to-one resonance. Callisto is just out there, totally decoupled from the system because it's not in resonance, but eventually Ganymede is going to be pushed out until now instead of having a 7.2-day period, its period lengthens to about 8.35 days. At that point, it will be in a two-to-one, come into 2-to-1 resonance with Callisto, and that will then trap Callisto in a resonance, and then all four will be in a quadruple resonance and slowly recess outwards. So that's sort of a hint in there about kind of what's going on here. Once one gets trapped into resonance and begins to process outward, the idea is, perhaps, it's just an idea, but a pretty good one, is that Io was the first one to begin recessing. It trapped Europa into a 2-to-1 resonance, and then Io-Europa moved out together, and then as they moved out together, Europa got Ganymede into a 2-to-1 resonance, and they are now proceeding out in lockstep. So resonances again, we're, we're seeing once again these resonances coming up as an important aspect of dynamical evolution. We're seeing these things actually changing their orbit configuration over time, and the signpost of that is we find these triple coincidence of whole numbers. That's not going to happen by accident. That's happening because they've evolved into that state through the action of gravity. Let's look at some of these individual moons one by one, of the Galilean moons. Each of them is just a fascinating world in itself. I could give a whole lecture on them, but I, I'm not going to because well, they're not that interesting to me, but I certainly think they're cool at some level let's start with Io. Io was nicknamed very early on the pizza moon and you can see that's that's actually well the colors are a little bit garish in this picture but that's not too far off what the actual color of Io would look like to your eye. They probably amped up the oranges a bit just to make it look a little bit more flashy but it's not that different it really is a yellowish orange moon. Now. I got a confession to make. When I was in grade school and high school, I was one of those people who never missed a day of school unless I was absolutely flat on my back sick. Well, that's not entirely true. I did play hooky. I did skip school one day in my entire life, at least in grade school. And it was on the day that Voyager 1 was passing by Jupiter. Our local PBS station was giving live data from JPL. I was living in California. And just before going to school, I flicked it on, was watching it, just up to when I had to leave for high school. This is 1979. So it's my senior year in high school. I saved it to last. I saw a picture very much like that, and I ditched. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. Here was a world that no one had seen before, and no one could explain it. Why does IO look that way? Well, the reason why IO is bright yellow and why it's so completely beaten up here so first of all, notice there's no impact craters on this thing. This is a geologically young surface. And there's all these funky black spots. In fact, this one black spot here, this is actually the crater, uh, volcano complex known as Pele, looks like a cloven hoof. It was often referred to as the devil's footprint for a short period of time. And it wasn't too far off because, in fact, these are active volcanoes. These are actually spewing out molten sulfur from the interior of Io, spraying up in fountains onto the surface. Now these volcanoes were not discovered by planetary scientists. They were discovered by a technician at JPL by the name of Joan Morabita. Joan Morabita was part of the navigation team for Voyager. And the way you navigate a spacecraft out in Jupiter or Saturn orbit is exactly the same way you would, analogous to how you would navigate a ship on the Earth without a GPS system. You use the stars. And so what they would do is they would take very long exposure pictures of the limb of the various moons to be able to see the background stars, and they would watch which stars were disappearing behind the limb of the moon because they knew the positions of the moon so well from years of watching the orbits and they could figure out the positions of stars in the celestial sphere. You can get an exact fix on the position of the spacecraft as it traveled through the Jovian system. And one of Joan Morabita's jobs was to look at those long-exposure pictures and map out and track the stars. And she came up with these anomalies on Io. In the deep pictures, there were these sort of plume-like shapes on the limb. And she, in fact, discovered the Io volcanoes. None of the planetary scientists had actually bothered to amp the contrast way up on the picture to see what was going on. So there were all these speculations about impact craters and other stuff like that. But Joan was actually very, uh, very observant. Was actually able to, c- to snag the discovery of them. It turns out, if you dug into the journal Icarus, there were predictions that Io could be volcanically active from many years before, because of Io's close proximity to Jupiter. But just goes to show you that in order to discover something, sometimes all you have to do is just keep your eyes open and notice. And in fact. A technician discovering something a planetary scientist should have uh, discovered is now known as the Morabita effect in astronomy. So all these pieces, that you see, these sort of funny-looking rounded shapes and splash marks you see here, are actually volcanic plumes. There are many tens of volcanoes going off on the surface of Io at any given time. A couple of these were discovered with Voyager 1 were still seen to be erupting and active 15 years later when Galileo spacecraft moved into orbit. This makes Io the most volcanically active place in our entire solar system. At any given time on the Earth, there aren't this many volcanoes per unit area going off on the surface. And that's why the surface is so young. It's been totally repaved with volcanic outflow over the last you know, billion odd years. Here's one of those plumes seen from the side. This is a gorgeous picture from the Galileo spacecraft. Now the colors are a bit more muted. You can actually see what Io really looks like. You can see the white stuff. That's ices. This is surface ices on here. And you can see how the ices are getting stained yellow from the sulfur coming up out of the volcanoes. You can see one of these plumes here. This is, in fact, a well-known volcano, Prometheus, that has been going pretty much nonstop for 15 years at the time this picture was taken in 1997. Here's a close-up picture of this region as as the Galileo spacecraft made one of the passes over there. This is the crack in the surface of of Io. This is our bright orange where the lava flow is actually coming out. So the Galileo spacecraft is actually able to take pictures of the lava flows. And again, you see it surrounded by, if, if very icy, brand new terrain. This is a really cool movie. This is uh, from the New Horizons spacecraft, which recently did a Jupiter flyby for slingshot effect to sling it out towards the dwarf planet Pluto back in uh, February of this year. As it swung around, it, it exercised its cameras, which are designed for the Pluto Kuiper Belt mission. And they shot this picture of Io from behind and caught the volcano Tvashtar, um erupting on the backside here on the planet. You can see the, the plume here. You can see how the stuff rises up and there's no atmosphere on this thing, or very tenuous atmosphere, if anything, on Io. It's mostly sulfur dioxide and a, actually a little bit of oxygen, but the oxygen is not oxygen O2, it's oxygen O plus and O because it's being knocked off the ices by ultraviolet radiation. So there's no life there, it's just, it's just ultraviolet photolysis. So the plume comes up and it sprays out. So that explains that kind of cloven hoof appearance. You're seeing dark material brought up from the inside of the moon and then sprayed over the fresh ices and fresh sulfur, and that gives you the dark plumes so as you're going along here. This picture on the right was taken with the infrared camera on board New Horizons. It shows uh, Io going into into Jupiter eclipse, so it's in the shadow of Jupiter and no longer in sunlight, and you can see all the thermal hotspots from all the volcanoes going off at that very instant either full plumes like Tvashtar up here, or which you can see the thermal plumes from one, two, three thermal plumes, and a series of hot which are open lava pools on the surface of this moon. This is a crazy place, absolutely crazy place. We're going to say a little bit more about where does Io get its heat? So there's a mystery. Where's Io getting its heat? And the answer will turn out to be tidal heating, but we'll see that towards the end here. So Io. Actively active regions. This is one of my favorite moons in the whole solar system. I love Io. Every time you look at it, it looks like something different. Here's another of the moons. It's the smallest of the Galilean moons: Io, Europa, Ganymede, Callisto. So we're moving our way out. We're out to Europa. Europa, is, Europa was also a surprise when the spacecraft came by that, that morning and took the first pictures of Europa. First thing that really bugged people was uh, uh, where are all the craters? Well, there's kind of one there, and there's one there. This is also a brand new, young surface. This surface has been completely repaved. In fact, what we're seeing is an icy surface covering a rocky core. You can measure the mean density of it, and you should be mostly rock with a big layer of ice. The surface is very, very smooth and very, very young. It has virtually no impact craters on it at all. But it is fractured terribly. It looks like a beaten-up old cue ball in many ways, but they're crack fractures, not impact fractures. Close-up pictures, and we'll see some pictures taken from near the North Polar Zone of this planet, or this moon, actually show breaking up of the ice into ice rafts and flows. It looks a lot like aerial photographs over the Arctic or the Antarctic uh, ice flows out in the ocean. What's going on here is also surface repaving, but it's not surface repaving by molten rock like we were seeing over on Io. It's surface repaving by liquid water freezing back into ice. So now it's a little bit hard to think about that, but it's true. In the outer solar system, we're in the realm of the ices now. So water ice, when it's really, really cold, is as hard as rock. It's almost get as hard as steel. But you make it warm, it's going to flow as a liquid, and so you actually get a kind of water volcanism going on. It's not what we normally think of, but it actually is a form of volcanism. If you crack the surface here of Io, Water from the heat of the interior, perhaps from an impact, can flow out, flood the plains, and then repave the surface, but now you're repaving with ice rather than rock. In fact, most of the repaving is not done through impacts, although there are a few impacts here, which have obviously punched through the, the, the icy crust of Io. You can see this large impact basin here on the lower right, where my laser pointer is. It's brought up fresh, shiny white ices to the surface, punched a hole in the crust, and repaved the surroundings. But probably what's going on is, is geysering or even a slow ooze of water out of cracks as the planet basically gets, gets gets cracked over time and it's completely repaved the surface. Here's a close-up picture from the Galileo spacecraft showing these ice rafts. This is a very, very bright, shiny, icy surface, but you can see it cracked and, and crazed across here. This looks an awful lot like ice flows in the ocean of the Arctic of the Earth. The only difference is there's no sign of liquid water, no sign of the ocean underneath, if there is an ocean underneath, anywhere in this picture. But that actually is the big question. If you've got ice flow here, is there in fact permanently liquid water down below the surface? What's it like below the the layers of ice here? So what lies beneath Io's surface? Well there are two ideas that have been proposed and we we don't yet have the data necessary to test them. The first of these is that you end up with a layer of about one to 200 kilometers of ice over a rocky core. So you get a metallic inner core and a rocky mantle and then on top of that you get a layer of water ice and it's basically ice all the way down until you get up to the cold, brittle surface here. Now ice under pressure, as we've seen this before even on Earth, Ice under pressure can actually flow. It actually does a slow convective turn. It's not exactly locked into a crystal when it's under pressure. For example, in glaciers, okay, or deep underneath polar ice, you can actually get into this flowing water state where you're kind of an amalgam. You've got a lot of ice crystals involved, but you're kind of this funny amalgam going on and it can actually form super slow convective flows because it's warm, but it's under pressure, so it's still frozen. So that's one idea. is you've simply got ice ball moon. It's a rock ball with a, with a thick layer of ice, again, one or 200 kilometers. And the stuff is basically convecting. And then as you get various upwellings and downwellings, you put stress on the upper crust, you crack it, the water comes up, the pressure's let off, it flows out like liquid and repaves the surface. Not too different from the kind of vertical, vertical uh, tectonism that we saw on Venus. But now instead of being liquid rock, it's icy water instead. The other and perhaps even more fascinating possibility is that underneath the surface ice cap is in fact a liquid ocean all the way down to a rocky surface. And this is the part that's got people really, really excited. It's a possibility of having a 150 kilometer deep water ocean covering the entire surface of Europa underneath that ice layer. The reason why this is so interesting is because if there are ices, if there's water liquid in liquid form, then all you need are two other pieces. Organics. Well, yeah, we're in the outer solar system. This place is crazy with organics. And heat. If it's still liquid, there may be a source of heating, keeping it warm. If you have liquid water, organics, and heat, you have the three primary ingredients for life. Maybe not people or something, but maybe even microbial life. So that's why the great interest in going back to Europa, both in the case of the United States and Europe, people have proposed a number of missions which are still in the planning stages. In fact, we don't even have launch dates for them yet. One idea is to send an orbiter with with ice-penetrating radar to be able to answer the question, is it water or is it just simply slush ball world down underneath the ice? Is it warm convecting ice or is it actually liquid? So this is part of a Europa orbiter pathfinder concept. This is probably not what the spacecraft's going to ultimately look like, just a concept from a few years ago. If, in fact, it's found that underneath the surface layers are liquid water, there's a group of people in NASA and Europe who are developing a series of autonomous robots called hydrobots. They're actually intending to test one of these in a few years in frozen Lake Vostok. Lake Vostok is a liquid, lake, liquid water lake Deep, many kilometers—I forget the number—two, three, or four kilometers deep below the ice of the Antarctic. It probably hasn't seen the light of day in two or three hundred million years. So one of the ideas is to drill down in there with a hydrobot and then release the hydrobot submarine to actually look at the bottom. And in this very fanciful cartoon here, you have the delivery vehicle, the hydrobot, its lights and cameras coming up on a hot smoker vent hot smoker vents in the deep oceans of the Earth are one of the most fecund places for primitive forms of life. So it certainly is a tr- tremendously interesting to speculate on what's going on, and I'm hoping over the next few decades that people will actually get their act together and start giving us some answers on this. This is one of the three places in, three or four places in the solar system case, that we think of life existing. Okay, there's the Earth, certainly. People are thinking about Mars in the distant past may have had liquid water. Now Europa might be a source of liquid water, heat, and organics, and we're going to meet the possible fourth tomorrow, the moon Enceladus, around Saturn. Stepping outwards, away from Europa, we now get into the outer outer two of the Galilean moons, and now all of a sudden, everything's different. These are bigger moons, they're darker, they're geologically older, and they're much denser. I'm sorry, much much lower density. We're now looking at moons which are primarily ices over a rocky core. So before, Io and Europa are mostly rock with thin layers of ices on top. Now we're seeing the real ice and rock amalgam moons. In this case, Ganymede, the largest of these, has a density of about 1.9 grams per cc. That's exactly intermediate between silicate rocks and ice, and therefore it's telling you that this is a primarily rock and ice mixture. What you do see on the surface of this is a very ancient terrain, okay? There's very large groove terrain. Some of these grooves are about 10 kilometers wide and about 300 meters deep. They're probably surface fractures in the icy layer. And the age of the surface is thought to be under about two billion years based on the number of impact craters we can see on top of the groove terrains. So this certainly is relatively recent tectonic activity, although it's a kind of a wrinkling sort of activity giving the groove terrain. You can see the number of impact craters on Ganymede is much larger. Io and Europa are brand new, young surfaces. They've been constantly repaved over their history and have wiped out their impact craters. Ganymede, on the other hand, is just pockmarked with craters. But now we have pockmarks going in an ice layer with sort of a dark organic goop patina that forms on just about everything in the outer solar system. As you break through this patina with an impact, you spray fresh, bright white ices out over the surface of the organic gunk. Again, the analogy I like to think of is, think about a snowy day in kind of like February. We've got about a foot of snow, and then it starts getting icy, and it freezes, thaws, freezes, thaws, and you know how it gets really black and nasty as all the coda buses go driving by splashing up asphalt and junk on it. So you get this sort of icy, black, nasty stuff by the side of the road. Now imagine taking a sledgehammer and whacking it really hard. What are you going to do? You're going to break through that nasty patina of organic tar and junk, and you're going to bring up fresh snow from below and spray it out over the surface. So you would expect the impact point to look like a bright white spot, a spray of fresh ice on top of black organic gunk. It's exactly what we see. This is largely what people thought the moons of Jupiter should have looked like. Io and Europa were real surprises in this regard. Here's those grooved terrains. This is again, this is a way we can actually do a form of stratigraphy just by imaging a surface. Now ideally, of course, stratigraphy we think of digging into the ground and looking at various layers. Here the layering is, we can see there has been some geologic activity in the past that has broken out, ices, there's been flows, and you've repaved the surface But those repaved regions underneath these grooved, cracked terrains have begun to accumulate impact craters. If they were brand new, there would be no impact craters at all. The older the terrain is, the more impact craters they begin to accumulate. Jupiter has a gigantic gravity. It hoovers up any rocks that come by, so it's a fairly violent environment. It's a little bit difficult to read the clock, but people got a good idea, and that's why people think that this repaving probably stopped about two billion years ago. Because if it was more recent, you'd see a lot fewer craters. You'd see a lot more fresh material. Instead, the material is cratered, you can see the craters overlapping on the grooves, and you know you're dealing with an intermediate age terrain. These moons are probably all four and a half billion years old, just like everything else in the solar system. But the last geologic activity was two billion years. So here is an old, cold world, by contrast to the geologically active Io and Europa. So again, we can do a kind of crude stratigraphy by not only counting craters, but by seeing how craters overlap with repaving features on a surface, places where you can see the surface has been modified by geologic activity. In this case, the flows of ices, flows of water, rather than flows of molten material. Finally, that brings us to Callisto, the outermost of the Galilean moons, And now we see, this is kind of a slightly blurry picture because this moon was only viewed from a long-distance full disk. It's very, very heavily cratered, very dark. Again, we see this bright impact features on top of dark, gooey gunk. It's clear by looking at the surface of Callisto, we see lots and lots of overlapping craters. In fact, people like to refer to the cratering density on the surface of places like Callisto to be Near saturation, lots of overlapping craters. That tells you a really, really ancient surface. And if you do the stratigraphy of those overlapping craters, the best estimate is that this surface was last repaved about 4 billion years ago. So it's an old, cold place. You also, again, like I say, get the bright craters with new, fresh ices brought up by recent impacts. Second clue to the composition of this world is again its density. This is a relatively intermediate density world. It's lower density than either Io or Europa. It's got 1.8 grams per cc. So once again, we're seeing ice layered on rock. We're halfway between silicate rock and iron and ice. Here's a close up of some of the dirty ice fields that have accumulated on top of Callisto. You can now get, this this is a very nice picture here because it shows you You know, if I didn't tell you this was a section of the Callisto terrain with the impact craters here, you'd think I took my camera out and took a close-up look at some of that black snow gunk you get collecting by the side of the road. In fact, this is a dark organic material, a lot of carbon in here. Um, A lot of it's probably cometary dust and junk being ground off of the various little moons and asteroids that collect around Jupiter. And it, of course, smacks on the surface and just kind of sits there and forms a patina on the surface. But you see lots and lots and lots of overlapping impact craters. Some signs of them having been filled in because we're dealing with an ice surface rather than a rock surface. Here's a particular section showing um, a very heavy impact here, up in the middle of this picture. You see where it's brought fresh ices up and sprayed them across the surface. But you can also see there are cracks and ripples going out to the surface. So when these impacts came in and hit, they cause cracks and ripples all the way through the ice crust of of Callisto. So again, we're seeing this evidence of going from the inside to the outside. The innermost of the Galilean moon's Io, very geologically active, very young surface, actually a hot interior. To the outside, Callisto. As we go progressively outwards, the worlds get colder, more ices, more and more ancient geologically inactive surfaces. They're losing internal heat. When their internal heat shuts down, No more tectonic activity. So let's look at some comparison here. Again, just sort of back up a bit and look in these worlds in comparison. Io and Europa are mostly composed of rock. Their densities are around 3.5 or 3 grams per cc. Therefore, that's going to be densities just like any old igneous rock or sedimentary rock you can walk outside and pick up. In the case of Io, we're probably even dealing with a rocky crust. It's mostly a molten mantle and has active volcanoes. Europa is where we first started to get the ices. We get an icy lithosphere on top of a rocky core and mantle. So we've got a thin layer of ice on Europa. There are ices on the surface of Io, but they're not the main form of the surface. The main form of the surface appears to be silicate like rocks. Ganymede and Callisto, we make that jump out, we suddenly get a nearly factor of two drop in density. So we've really gone from mostly rocky things to rock and ice mixtures, again 1.9 1.8 grams per cc so these intermediate densities between rock and ice we're seeing very very moons would probably are different they're certainly differentiated they're big enough to have been molten in the interior that means the rock and metal sank to the bottom and the ice has floated to the surface and froze out so their differentiation was on the earth remember differentiation was metal sink to the middle rock floats to the surface so we get an iron core and a silicate crust and mantle in the Galilean moons, the rock sinks to the middle and the ices float to the surface. And you end up with rock cores or mixed rock and metal cores and icy surfaces, icy mantles and icy, icy surfaces. These are also less geologically active worlds. These worlds have frozen solid, literally. And because they've frozen solid, there's no more ma- molten material in their interior, in this case molten ices rather than molten rock, and therefore they've geologically shut down. This is what you would expect for objects of this size. They're small and they cool off very rapidly. So the big question's gotta be, why are Io and Europa so active? What is it that keeps them hot? So here's just a picture to illustrate what I just said. These are hypothetical cutaways now based on the best spacecraft data, estimates of density, our knowledge of the properties of various types of materials. We're dealing with Io, it's probably got a deep, rocky metal core surrounded by that, a sort of a mushy, um, mostly silicate (coughs) mantle and then silicate rocks on the surface and maybe a thin patina of ices on the very surface itself. This inner mantle is very molten, it's composed of a lot of sulfur and the stuff comes blowing out onto the surface in the form of the active volcanoes. On Europa, we end up with a metal rock core surrounded by a rocky mantle and then s- not too exaggerated here a very very deep perhaps liquid water ocean maybe a slushy ice ocean underneath an icy outer surface so we've kind of taken something like a small version of Io and coated it with ices but we've only put a small coating of ices on it so not surprisingly Io is pretty high density Europa is somewhat lower density but underneath that we see a differentiation now a threefold differentiation metals in the middle silicates on top of that, ices above that still not surprisingly high to intermediate to low densities so when you add it all up together you get something about 3 grams per cc or so Ganymede again strongly differentiated in the middle but now a lot of ices in fact these are composed mostly of ice or maybe 50-50 rock ice mixture so they have intermediate densities. Deep ice mantles now and old ice surfaces frozen solid finally Callisto may not in fact have a core at all. It may just simply be a rock and ice slush ball with pure ices on the outside. And this particular idea, if you look at the pressure, there may in fact be a liquid zone deep underneath Callisto, but that's probably long since frozen away. So what's going on here? Why is there such a difference here in the composition? Why is there such a difference in geologic activity? And the answer is, once again, what drives geologic activity is the internal heat of a body. Now in the inner solar system, like Earth and Venus, they have hot interiors because they're big and it takes longer than four and a half billion years for them to cool off and that that residual heat is abetted by continuous input of heat from radioactive isotopes like uranium and thorium. Mercury and Mars have cold interiors, the moon. They've all solidified and they're geologically inactive. In the Galilean moons, the internal heat is not determined by their size. It's the two smallest bodies that have the hottest interiors. And the reason is because if they had been left to their own devices, if they had been sent into orbit around the sun as dwarf planets, they'd be frozen solid and inactive. The reason why Io and Europa are hot is because of their proximity to Jupiter and its immense tidal gravitational field. The tides of Io are basically sitting there squeezing Io repeatedly like a tennis ball getting squeezed and released, squeezed and released, and that tidal friction has melted the interior heated it up and is actually allowing a tiny little body which should be solid all by itself to be molten into this day. So the energy source is not radioactivity like in the case of Earth and Venus plus residual heat of formation, it's tidal heating by Jupiter. So here's the first case we've seen in the solar system where tidal effects also play a role in internal heating and determine the geologic activity properties of otherwise small bodies. So let's keep an eye out for that effect as we go out into the solar system elsewhere. For example, tomorrow around uh, this planet Saturn and see if we see similar effects around Saturn.